and we are live this time without any audio apart from me so please imagine exciting and very dramatic intro music telling you that we're live from the metropolitan line the morning break with tabitha mcintosh and indeed good morning it's monday and i am in fact tabitha mcintosh here to expose which fictional children the teachers of edu twitter would least like to see in their classrooms and I don't mean the bad children, we covered them last week. I mean the beloved ones, the Anne Shirley's and the Lucy Pevensies, the Christopher Robins, the Holden Caulfields, the Harry Potters. I, I have no love for Harry Potter. Right, I am just gonna check that we're even live. Uh, we seem to be. Right, so today I'm unable to play the news, the education news with Gail Glenn. So I'm gonna be exploring the education news myself. Come with me for a journey through broadsheet coverage of education news. Uh, from The Guardian, we have a, a real mix of teacher news, university news and student news, which as we'll see is characteristic. Um, Australian scientists fear job insecurity as morale plummets. That's exciting, but here I'm a teacher I don't really want to know about Australian scientists. Sorry, Guardian. UK's strictest head teacher, Catherine Burblesing, made social mobility chief. A lot of opinions about that on Edu Twitter and Twitter in general. Uh, Devon teenagers inspire English schools with mental health resources. How very wholesome of them. Um, and I'm sure inspirational, but we won't pause to look. Uh, we will just go on to the next thing. UK unions call for tighter COVID safety measures in schools as cases surge. Not enough blackhead teachers in England, says Nadim Zahawi, the new Secretary of State for Education. Delays set to push COVID jabs for teens in England into Christmas period. Not very strong narrative there on schools, certainly a range of coverage. Let's see what the Telegraph has to say. Well, the Telegraph, remember the uh, Guardian started with Australia. The Telegraph starts with the United States. Row over New York's decision to scrap talented and gifted selective schools. One can only guess why they're covering that i imagine it's something to do with grammar schools gap between private school fees and state school spending doubles in a decade um make family members isolate if your pupil catches covid says teaching union and then my favorite headline michael gove quotes oprah as he tells britons i'll help you live your best life horrifying thought really michael gove helping me live my best life um again not much when you go to the education tab of these specialist education tabs. Again, a very mixed bag from all over the world covering universities and schools. Let's try the Times. Maybe the Times is a bit better. Uh, students campaign to have transphobic professors sacked. Most of the Times education page is about Professor Kathleen Stock and the University of Sussex. Uh, no uniforms, no detentions, no maths lessons. Is XP the school of the future? Uh, national primary tests will continue. Schools must act over futile TV watershed. That's a bit of moral panic about the idea that, that children were watching Squid Game and then killing each other in the playground. So I think we can all agree that the national press is confused, uninterested, not particularly focused on education and prone to throwing in whatever grab bag they have going on in the rest of their newspapers and their particular agenda into the education section. What a shame we couldn't have Gail Glenn and her more specialist approach. So let's just check in on Twitter and make sure that we're broadcasting. We seem to be, we are live, fantastic. All right, let's get back to these fictional children, shall we? So 
before we go there, um, I'm just going to tell you about one of the sponsors of this show, which is Oxford University Press. If you need support with your phonics teaching, Oxford University Press now has three Department for Education validated programs to help you. Read Write Incorporated Phonics, Floppies Phonics, and the brand new Essential Letters and Sounds. Essential Letters and Sounds will get all your children reading well, quickly, using phonics books you may already have in your classroom. Developed by the Knowledge Schools Trust English Hub, it's affordable, easy to use, and makes teaching phonics with letters and sounds more effective. To find out more about these programs and receive support from your OUP expert, local education consultant, visit www.oxfordprimary.com forward slash phonics. One more time, that's www.oxfordprimary.com forward slash phonics. So let's discuss the awful children of literature. Um, last week, I broadcast a show of rare and outstanding perfection, I really have to say, only to find that uh, it had cut out after 15 minutes and only 15 minutes of said perfection had been recorded. Um, I can assure you that my, my mother, who was sitting on the couch throughout, and the three cats were greatly entertained and totally appreciated me. But I thought it might be nice to reach out to a bigger audience today. Um, the cats had no particular opinions on Anne Shirley from Anne of Green Gables, which was desperately disappointing. Um, I asked last Sunday, which fictional child would be the worst to have in the classroom? That was my question for Edu Twitter and my theme for the show. And there was an explosion of answers. Teachers have apparently been loathing fictional children for their entire lives and we're only waiting for a simple catalyst that would allow it to explode into rage life. If you listened to last week's episodes, last week's even, you will remember the teacher outrage, pure untrammeled outrage at the infant narcs of A-level literature, Bryony from Atonement and Leo from The Go-Between. Snitches get stitches, Leo and Bryony. Uh, Mr. Murphy and I, I was particularly fond of this, discussed how Lyra from his dark materials would disappear literally every school day, occasioning industrial quantities of email from pastoral um, along the lines of where, oh God, where is Lyra now? And can you please remember never to let her out of class unless she uses her red card? You know it. Briefings and morning break. Have you seen this child? When you're on break duty, Lyra is not to be allowed on the all weather pitch. She was eating a sandwich slash spying on teachers slash leading an insurrection against God himself, actually. Uh, others of you picked out Horrid Henry for being, you know, horrid. And Just William for being central casting difficult to teach. Adrian Mole came up a couple of times because of the inevitable whining and, and let's face it, distraction from your planned lessons into questions about whatever Norwegian leather industry kick he's on that day. Uh, one history teacher, and I like this, singled out Bruno from The Boy in the Striped Pyjamas, um, a, a book about which opinions are, are quite fixed at the moment, generally negative. Imagine a nine-year-old in wartime Germany, she said, totes ignorant of Hitler, unteachable. Children need curiosity, some basic curiosity. And the central conceit that Bruno has no idea what's going on or who Hitler is, is just ridiculous. Bruno's a dunderhead. No, no one wants Bruno in their class. Speaking of history, one of the other of our show sponsors is the History Hotline podcast. The History Hotline is the hottest thing for all things black history and beyond, a space to have honest conversations about black history and how it impacts the world we live in. 
The History Hotline podcast explores some of the facets of black history ignored by the mainstream, your teachers and the textbooks. Check out the podcast by following the History Hotline on all good podcast platforms. Now that, um, in addition to some healthy hatred of Macduff Jr., uh, son of Macduff, who dies allegedly tragically in uh, Macbeth, slaughtered um, with all Macduff's other pretty chicks in one fell swoop. Um, and, and what a colossal jackass he is. And his endless sexualized banter with his mother about who she's going to go out with now that her father's ab- his father's abandoned her was just wildly inappropriate and I thought frankly disrespectful. So wouldn't want Macduff Jr. in class. Um, you'd have to report him to safeguarding for far too grown up topics of conversation. Um, Patrick Craig did hold out for the bloody child instead, imagining him rising from a cauldron in period five English, which is even worse than wasps or spiders. But, um, but yeah, but we had got to uh, the famous five, which Daniel Phillips and Zoe Ensign nominated. The famous five, all of the famous five. Yes, including Timmy the dog. So Zoe quite famously is vegan and apparently her credentials only go so deep because Timmy will be first against the wall when the revolution comes for Zoe. Horrifying. So let's see how justified their homicidal rage is. With this extract from the opening of book three, five run away together, and if only they had permanently, um, with a particular focus on Julian, who was singled out by Martin Galway, as particularly vile, which in a cast of characters of such unspeakable vileness is, is quite impressive. Last week, um, we got as far as the children's propensity to casually ignore what is clearly an abusive relationship between George's father and mother. The the whole book begins with the kids turning up and George saying, What ho, coves? Do not talk to the father, for he is very angry and abusing my mother. I'm paraphrasing. And uh, and they went, gosh, that'll give us more time to trample over the rights of the proletariat, won't it? Yes, said George, ripping. And, um, And they left Uncle Philip to it. Uh, but, oh yeah, and then also, <laughs> we also covered Anne's delighted celebration of her joint ownership of Kirin Island, um, a swaggering concentration of power, capital and land in the hands and paws of a quite literally tiny minority. So we're just about to meet the poor. They do make regular appearances in the famous five books. Um, they need someone to arrest and to provide them food. Uh so this is the children. Obviously, they've uh, they've discussed how George's mother is being emotionally abused, possibly physically, and how they don't care because it gives them more time to to you know exploit the masses. And um, and now one of the poor has come to help carry their things. A sour-faced woman came out from the back door to help them down with their luggage. The children did not know her. Who's she? They whispered to George. Creepy children, but anyway, the new cook said George. Joanna had to go and look after her mother, who broke her leg. Their mother got this cook. Mrs. Stick, her name is. Brace yourself for some top-level banter from Julian. Right? It's it's impressive. I bet you can't guess where it's going. Just to recap the basics of his banter, the elements that make up the gold he's about to drop. The new cook's name is Mrs. Stick, and, and she is not particularly friendly looking. Good name for her, grinned Julian. She looks like a real old stick. Ha! Genius. But all the same, I hope she doesn't stick here for long. I hope Joanna comes back. Right, now before we get to the assessment of Joanna, 
whose mother has broken her leg. You'll notice no one cares about that. They've just deigned to let her go off for a while. Well, they would all starve to death without the poor to cook them food because, you know, obviously George's mother is too busy sating the emotional demands of her abusive husband. Um, yeah, stick wordplay. I think he could have gone for more. It's a sticky situation, Julian. That would have been a, a tricolon of stick puns. You're just not trying hard enough. Aim higher. I hope Joanna comes back. I liked old fat Joanna and she was nice to Timmy. Thank you very much. So if we had the famous five in class, because remember that is the conceit we're working on here today. What if we had these fictional heroes and heroines of literature in our classrooms? Um, unless you teach at the, the very elite sector level of education, I think you'll agree that they would just be unbearable swine to have in the classroom. Uh, it'd be very hard not to encourage well, I was about to say something unforgivable, so I won't say that. Um, but on the subject of collectives of children who would make any teacher's life hell, C. Keeling suggested the infant denizens of the Peanuts cartoons, especially Lucy Van Pelt. But they are all shockers. I mean, on the most basic level, they don't listen to a word you say. Have you heard how teachers speak in the Peanuts cartoons? It's like this. Right, that they're not listening to us. Nothing is going in. You can be seen looking. You can do pastors perch. You can do cold calling. Doesn't matter. Like their entire interior, stupid little cartoon lives are entirely focused away from education. These children have attitude problems. Um, Lucy Van Pelt is obviously a disgusting bully. Um, but but all of them. A pig pen, huge safeguarding issue. Needs to have a shower very urgently. You have to be contacting people about that. Linus won't do anything but play. No, that's not Schroeder who won't do anything but play his piano. They're all awful. So yeah, in the sea with all of them. But on again, on the subject of collectives, several of you suggested the boys from Lord of the Flies. All of the boys from Lord of the Flies, just all of them. Every last man, Jack of them. Ah ha ha ha. See if I can get another Jack joke into to reach Julian levels of humorousness. But see people, and that is like shooting mid-century, hyper-masculine, class-bound English fish in a barrel. We're not supposed to like the boys from Lord of the Flies or have them in our class, right? Um, so so I'm going to, I'm not going to allow that. And just as I disallowed Damien from The Omen, like, well, of course we don't want him in class. We'd have to hang ourselves while shrieking, Damien, I'm doing it for you, Damien, or be decapitated or you know any of the other exciting things that happen to educational and care professionals attached to Jamie and the Omen. Um, oh yeah, the girl from The Ring, Patrick particularly didn't want her crawling out of his, his whiteboard in the middle of a lesson. But they're too easy, people. Of course we don't want actual monsters in our classroom. The, the people that we're looking for here today, the children that we want to identify today, are the ones we're supposed to like, this one, the ones we're supposed to love, the ones in fact we might love in other contexts. Uh, last week I consigned not just Lucy, um, and Lucy, not just Amy from Little Women into the sea uh, for having a class. Remember, she brings in all those pickled limes constantly. Like, uh, why would you do that? And they would absolutely soak through their nonsensical paper container, soak into her exercise books, and occasion a 15-minute class distraction where all of her, you know, annotations of the poetry anthology had run because they were covered in pickled lime juice, which isn't even nice. But I also put Beth in there as well because... Beth is just really annoying 
and uh, Meg, because all she does is her makeup, and Joe, because she married Professor Bauer, and that was completely unforgivable. So, sorry, Joe. I don't care how great you are, you're out. Uh, but if we're going to get really ambitious, um, big points to Nick Wood, who, uh, who went straight for the outrageous by suggesting the insufferable Christopher Robin, all-knowing, smug. This outraged my mother, but to my mother and to other outraged listeners, I would remind you of um, Dorothy Parker's review of The House at Pooh Corner, I think it was, either that or Now We Are Six, where um, she hated it. She hated it so much that her last line is, constant weeder flowed up. Yeah. Unbearably smug, unbearably cute. No thank you from uh, our hard smoking, hard drinking heroines of um, the literary establishment. So that is actually my theme for today. Beloved, absolutely beloved, adorable children's characters who were often looked upon by teachers with a jaundiced and unkind eye. Frankly, unfair eye. And so let's go straight to the heart of um, literature in England for children after the war. And we'll go to the Pevensey children, right? The children from The Lion, The Witch and The Wardrobe. And specifically, I love you people. You didn't go with Edmund, whose mere crime is enjoying Turkish delight, which, you know, who can blame him? Whomst among us has not enjoyed a bit of Turkish delight? and sold out our brothers and sisters to Satan for a box of it. I feel that he's understandable. He has a lovely character arc. He was bad, he becomes good. So Edmund, Edmund's my guy, people. But Lucy and Peter, Lucy and Peter are the true monsters here. I know what you're saying. No, no, Lucy's a good egg. I don't know why you're saying it like that, but apparently you are. Um, James Hanscom specifically adores Lucy. No, she's, she's a precious golden baby and he won't have a hair on her head insulted, but, Bear with me. Perhaps you, like me, suspect that Lucy and Peter will make suggestions at the end of the lesson about how you could have improved your teaching. Definitely. Perhaps you, like me, think that Lucy and Peter will complain to your head of year when you don't set homework. You know they will. Um, or perhaps you, like me, think that they will bring the lesson to a screeching halt by loudly observing which of their peers are not underlining the dates correctly or talking, or passing notes, or doing any normal human child type behaviour, any Edmundy type child type behaviour. No, we're, we're cursed with these impossibly perfect children. Let's look at the evidence from the very first pages of The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. This is a bit, spans um, pages one to two. This is our introduction to them. This is C.S. Lewis showing, not telling, by giving us their dialogue. As soon as they had said goodnight to the professor, and gone upstairs on the first night. The boys came into the girls' room and they all talked it over. We've fallen on our feet and no mistake, said Peter. This is going to be a perfectly splendid. That old chap will let us do anything we like. Hmm. Peter is getting a sense that he's a swaggering monster of entitlement, perhaps. A sociopathic inclination to exploit the elderly. Hmm. We're here with an old man. He doesn't seem capable of, of managing us and monitoring us. We're going to take over his house. It's essentially Lord of the Flies, people, but with the Pevensies. And I put it to you that, that he's Jack. Uh, I think he's an old dear, said Susan, who was unbearably patronising and would, by the end of the book, discover lipstick and, by implication, adult female sexuality, 
that's banishing her from the group because women are disgusting. I may have added all of that last bit. Um, you do remember that, right? That Susan can't can't see magic because Susan likes boys now and growing up girls are disgusting. Yeah, sorry, Susan. But yeah, I think he's an old dear, said Susan. Mm, Susan, patronizing the elderly, not very nice. Here's my hero, Edmund. Oh, come off it, said Edmund, who was tired and pretending not to be tired, which always made him bad tempered. Don't go on talking like that. And I think the children of Britain can agree with Edmund. Please don't go on talking like that. It's quite unbearable. But no. Like what, said Susan. And anyway, it's time you were in bed. Trying to talk like mother, said Edmund. And who are you to say when I'm to go to bed? Go to bed yourself. See, Edmund resists automatic hierarchies uh, based on age and performative gender roles in the sociologically determined understanding of men and women. I like Edmund. Edmund is good. Uh, and let's hear from Lucy. Hadn't we all better go to bed, said Lucy, the unbearable knock. There's sure to be a row if we're heard talking here. No, there won't, said Peter. I tell you, this is the sort of house where no one's going to mind what we do. Murder, probably. Anyway, they won't hear us. It's about 10 minutes walk here down to that dining room and any amount of stairs and passages in between. I just, I think Lucy and Peter would be awful. And notice if you left the classroom for five minutes, Peter would have taken over by the time you came back. Like a true Briton. So, Pevensey children, fine. And here we have another one um, from my second in faculty and possibly the greatest human who ever lived, Trish Gordon. She just replied with a single one word answer, Matilda. You could hear the disgust, the county lead dramatic accent coming through there, which I won't try and do because I think that'll be a hate crime. Um, also chosen by Rebecca Coburn. So I thought another extract time, time for us to look at the evidence of Matilda. Now, the main problem with Matilda before we get anywhere else is if she doesn't like your lesson she can literally kill you with her mind which I feel would make her quite a problematic student to have in class keeping you on your toes uh always wanting group work and discovery learning and diamond nines or whatever whatever will keep the girl happy apparently she lives on a constant diet of Dickens novels so yeah. um <laughs> but uh, I thought we'll look at the evidence of her in the classroom and decide at what point the internal exclusions, then the fixed term exclusions, then the managed moves, and then probably quite early, the referral to the police come in with Matilda and her, her peer groups, attitudes to learning and behavior in the classroom. So in this scene, she is um, being told about the war against Miss Trunchbull. I think Miss Trunchbull has been, been written badly. And I think what we need to remember about Miss Trunchbull is that she is running the room, that she is, uh, she's got a zero, like zero tolerance policy for low level disruption. And as we'll see, she really does promote a knowledge rich education, making sure that the girls and boys are full of cultural capital. Um, in many ways, she's a hero of our times, our particular educational times. But no, the children are ungrateful, horrible. So here we go. Uh, 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 just checking it. <laughs> I thought. I thought Tom was telling me that um, that I wasn't broadcasting, but apparently we are. All right, Tom, get ready for Matilda. So 
The first time, Hortensia said, who's explaining the terrible things she's done to uh, Miss Trunchbull. I remember we're looking for internals, externals, managed moves, referrals to the police. The first time, Hortensia said, I poured half a tin of golden syrup onto the seat of the chair the Trunchbull was going to sit on at prayers. It was wonderful. When she lowered herself into the chair, there was a loud squelching noise, similar to that made by a hippopotamus when lowering its foot into the mud on the banks of the Limpopo River. Well, it's hard to um, identify a culprit here. So I think probably Hortensia gets away with anything. But what I'd like us to stop and notice is that Hortensia has uh, committed to her long-term memory and recalled with automaticity some geographical facts about the banks of the Limpopo River and the hippopotamuses on them. So even as she is plotting the unfair attacks upon Miss Trunchbull, she is displaying all kinds of outstanding teaching and learning, the effects of the, the residue of thought, as it were, people. So when the Trunchbull sat down on the golden syrup, the squelch was beautiful. And when she jumped up again, the chair sort of stuck to the seat of those awful green breeches she wears and came up with her for a few seconds until the thick syrup slowly came unstuck. And then she clasped her hands to the seat of her breeches and both hands got covered in the muck. You should have heard her bellow. I'm just, at this point, I'm turning to you and making a side eye. Matilda is lapping this up. She's loving this. And this is what Hortensia managed merely with, with regular human ability to move objects and torture teachers. Remember that Matilda can do it with her mind. I chose a time when I knew the trunchbull was out of the way teaching the sixth formers. And I put up my hand and asked to go to the bogs. But instead of going there, I sneaked into the trunchbull's room. And after a speedy search, I found the drawer where she kept all her gym knickers. The level of, okay, so we've got bunking off from the classroom. We've got uh, breaking and entering. We've got violating all kinds of um, inappropriate sexualized behavior going through the teacher's underwear drawer. Any sensible child, any good child, even a Lucy or a Peter, those monsters of niceness, would, uh, would not take this well. But Matilda, what is she? She's spellbound. Go on, Matilda said. What happened next? What Matilda should be talking about is the hippopotamuses of the Limpopo River and what she's learned about them. I had sent away by post, you see, for this very powerful itching powder, Hortensia said. It cost 50p a packet. It was called the Skin Scorcher. The label said it was made from the powdered teeth of deadly snakes and it was guaranteed to raise welts the size of walnuts on your skin. So I sprinkled this stuff inside every pair of knickers in the drawer and folded them all up carefully again. Now we'll see this theme um, when we come to Harry Potter and, and the children in the Hogwarts school who the Harry Potter novel deigns to put their approval upon. Um, violent pranks that involve serious physical damage and or unlicensed experimentation on unwilling subjects are a real theme of some of our alleged heroes of literature. When they should be learning about hippopotamuses of the Limpopo River, they are instead um, well, displaying rather poor economic skills knowledge. She actually believes this is from the powdered teeth of deadly snakes. Foolish. Um, you'll notice earlier, Miss Trunchbull was being tortured during prayers, which I feel like was, was a hate crime. That just carries on. Well, Hortensia said, a few days later during prayers, Miss Trunchbull suddenly started scratching herself like mad down below. Right, I'm abandoning it there because it just gets worse. Um, it's monstrous. It's a hate crime. Matilda is the devil. And I think we can all agree on that. Uh, in terms of beloved characters, though, um, especially ones who are beloved to anyone aged Gen X or above in Britain or America, but especially America, um, Barry Shapiro, teacher Barry Shapiro, 
is a man bold enough to take on our most beloved characters because he's chosen Holden Caulfield as an unbearable child to have in class. Let's consider the evidence on Holden as a student. Um, I think he's on his third school by the time he gets kicked out. Um, our story starts with our hero, in inverted commas, having left Pensy School, Percy School. He's failing all his subjects except English, so that's not great. Um, but there is more. Uh, <laughs> Holden is the manager of the fencing team. Uh, in this capacity, he's in charge of all the equipment, which he himself says is a very big deal. Hundreds and hundreds, possibly thousands of pounds worth of equipment. And uh, he leaves all of it, all the fencing foils, on the New York subway. And he replaces them with a red hunting hat. And his excuse is that he was too distracted in looking at the map. Mm, nice try, Holden Caulfield. So not only would he ruin all your equipment, lose all your equipment, fail all your classes, um, he'd also call you a phony a lot. A really repetitive insult vocabulary. A bit like Julian in the, the stick, he over relies on that one word. But while we're on the subject of teen icons, um, moving away from fiction and into film, very strong suggestion from Ben Newmark from the world of cinema, Ferris Bueller. Uh, a film that does not bear re-watching like so many of the John Hughes films I grew up with. Don't watch 16 Candles if you um if you don't want to find out what wild racism looks like and that you didn't notice in the 80s if you were a 14-year-old white kid who simply wanted to enjoy the stylings of the teenagers of Sherman High School. <coughs> what Ben Newman says, Newmark says, is that Ferris Bueller is deeply unpleasant and controlling. His sister is right about him, to which Kate Finlayson adds, watch this with my teens last week. They fully expected him to get caught because he's obviously the bad guy. So we've been thinking about bad guys, difficult to manage guys, and it is therefore a perfect time to mention one of our sponsors, who is Mal CPD. If you struggle with people pleasing and find it is a constant battle to manage different and difficult personalities, then why not challenge and empower your team through the MAL CPD Essential Coaching Skills for School Leaders course. Alternatively, gain practical skills to become a strong and compassionate leader through the Assertive Leadership and Emotionally Intelligent Leader course. All MAL CPD courses are accredited by the Institute of Leadership and Management. Find out more at www.malcpd.com. Let's go back to different and difficult personalities. And um, we're about to enter the world of a group of children who I would say not so much difficult, but different. Whimsical characters, people. Now, I mentioned that Anne of Green Gables would be impossible to teach, and, and you didn't like that. Twitter was not happy with me. Anne of Green Gables is their favorite human being of all time. They would, they would die for Anne Shirley, quite frankly. Um, so we'll, we'll build up to her, and instead we'll start with a different whimsical character, Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm. Um, <laughs> I've got a lovely letter to her mother here um, describing her experiences at school that reveal exactly what kind of classroom monster she is. Ready? School is pretty good. The teacher can answer more questions than the temperance one, but not so many as I can ask. That's right. Rebecca is full of whimsical questions. She's a nearly grown child 
who will unaccountably spend two years in a bed being ill at some point, like people do in 19th century and early 20th century novels, is very exciting. No, my mother is saying, no, that's Pollyanna. Pollyanna, different whimsical child. I've mixed up my whimsical girl children, people. So let's let's forgive Rebecca of the sin of recovering in bed for two years um, and then just focus on her whimsy and her questions. Let's see what happens here. Who among us doesn't recognise this behaviour? On a certain warm day in summer, Rebecca's thirst exceeded the bounds of propriety. When she asked a third time for permission to quench it at the common fountain, Miss Dearborn nodded yes, but lifted her eyebrows unpleasantly as Rebecca neared the desk. Right, Miss Dearborn's making classic beginner's mistake here by allowing this child to go to the water fountain. But that is what's happening, right? Miss, can I go to the water fountain? Miss, can I go to the water fountain? Miss, can I crunkle my bottle? Miss, I need to refill my bottle. It's very important. As I tell my children constantly, my children as in the children I teach, my own child is, has learnt to be dehydrated as a, a way of life um, to please me. The need for hydration in the young is greatly exaggerated. In fact, the need for hydration is greatly exaggerated. It's one of the, the vast and most stupid misunderstandings of science of our time. That the idea that we need to drink eight pints of water a day or whatever nonsensical amount of random water um, has been suggested. You'll hear people say, um, this is my favourite, by the time you feel thirsty, you're already dehydrated. That's literally not true. When you're thirsty, you're thirsty. That's how that works. Um, anyway, so Rebecca, her thirst is exceeding the bounds of propriety. You know she's going to be asking to go to the toilet soon, repeatedly, and not listening to the very logical suggestion that maybe if she didn't try many, drink so many ladles of water, she wouldn't have to pee again. Um, what's the matter with you, Rebecca? The teacher asks who really needs to get control of the situation. I had salt mackerel for breakfast, answered Rebecca. There seemed nothing humorous about this reply, which was merely the statement of a fact, but an irrepressible titter ran through the school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know why you're angry with me. I just said what I had for breakfast. <sighs> Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm, monster. Right, so that takes me to Anne Shirley. Anne is wonderful. Okay, I agree. I love those books. Although reading them as an adult, there was rather more description of mystical trees than I remember there being as a child. Too much description of mystical trees. And the whimsical nature of Anne is really what would make her unbearable in the classroom. Let's take as our evidence um, when she's first going towards the farm with Matthew, um, Matthew Cuthbert and Rilla, the elderly couple who have adopted her. Oh, Mr Cuthbert, she whispered, that place we came through, that white place. What was it? Well, now you must mean the avenue, said Matthew, after a few moments of profound reflection. He had to think deeply because what Anne described there as that white place was a road. It was called the avenue, Anne. It was a road. Like, I don't know why you're confused about it, but I feel like you're trying too hard already out of the gate on the, the whimsical alien landed in Prince Edward Island, Canada. <coughs> it is a pretty kind of place, says Matthew, not really knowing what to say to her. Ready? Manic pixie dream girl comes back with pretty. Oh, pretty doesn't seem the right word to use, nor beautiful either. They don't go far enough. Oh, it was wonderful, wonderful. It's the first thing I ever saw that couldn't be improved upon by imagination. It satisfies me here. She put one hand on her breast. It made a queer, funny ache. And yet it was a pleasant ache. Did you ever have an ache like that, Mr. Cuthbert? Safeguarding red flags really going off at the moment. Poor, poor Matthew. <laughs> You know this child grabbing her breast and asking if he has a pleasant ache? No! Anyway, 
uh yeah the road she's never seen anything as lovely as a road i just i don't know what to do with anne like, just get on with the plot please stop talking about roads but uh yeah matthew desperately trying to make conversation well now i can't recollect that i ever had had yeah no, nothing to say really to the queer funny ache right about to go back to the ache she's not dropping it she's just going to carry on at this point you need to make sure there's more people in the room than just you and anne shirley i have it lots of times whenever I see anything royally beautiful. But they shouldn't call that lovely place the Avenue. There's no meaning in a name like that yet. Actually, Anne, there is literal meaning in a name. It's an avenue. Let's let's see what she suggests instead. They should call it, let me see, the White Way of Delight. Isn't that a nice imaginative name? No, it's not particularly imaginative at all. It's just, it's just an abstract noun for niceness. The White Way of Delight. What? That, and not particularly usable as names go, the Boulevard of Delight, maybe. No. Uh, when I don't like the name of a place, brace for it, or a person, I always imagine a new one. And I always think of them so. There was a girl at the asylum whose name was Hepzibah Jenkins, but I always imagined her as Rosalia Devere. <laughs> she. <laughs> so, Anne, misnaming probably misgendering and mischaracterizing children in the classroom because she doesn't like their actual names and instead is going to give them a French name. Uh, sounds a bit racist to me, Anne, quite frankly. And also just a bit confusing. You know, every time you call the register, she's going to announce a different name for herself or correct you. Like, no, that's not Armina anymore. That's Rosalia de la Touche, the French émigré mysterious from the White Way of Delight, who hath wandered in. All right. Other people may call that place the Avenue, but I shall always call it the White Way of Delight. All right. I think you've already said that. And also, there's no shared frame of reference, Anne. So if like, you give that as your Amazon address, it's just not going to work, is it? Right. Have we really only another mile to go before we go home? The readers are asking this too at this point. I'm glad and I'm sorry. I'm sorry because this drive has been so pleasant. And I'm always sorry when pleasant things end. Something still pleasanter may come after it, but you can never be sure. And so often, in that case, it isn't pleasanter. This has been my experience anyhow. But I'm glad to think of getting home, you see. I've never had a real home since I can remember. It gives me that pleasant ache. Oh, God, stop talking about the ache, Anne. Again, just to think of coming to a really, truly home. Oh, isn't that pretty? Right. I am. Um, I teach a variety of, of Key Stage 5 lessons, and one of them is language and literature. So what we were just doing in language and literature was Grice's maxims. So there's a man called Grice, and he has maxims. I mean, we could possibly come up with a different name for them. The white Grisian maxims of delight or something. But he's got rules for conversation, successful conversation, and you don't violate them. So there's a maxim of quality, right? Does, does what you're saying actually answer the question? Has it got true and relevant information? Is it useful? We've got a maxim of quantity. Is it the correct amount of reply? Um, and it's those two I'm going to stick with because Anne violates them on every occasion. That speech of hers I've just read out is an entire half a page of, of 12 point 11.84 on single spacing <laughs> and maximum of manner I, I think he just said how are you and this is what she said um, and then we get to Barry's pond they had driven over the crest of a hill below them was a pond looking almost like a river so long and winding was it a bridge spanned it midway and from there to its lower end where an amber-hued belt of sand hills shut it in from the dark blue gulf beyond. The water 
was a glory of many shifting hues, the most spiritual shadings of crocus and rose and ethereal green with other elusive tintings for which no name has ever been found. You know, as a kid, I did, um, when I read these, I did try and look at nature through Anne's eyes and see ethereal tints and spiritual shadings, and it, it never worked, people. Maybe I just lack the whimsical dimension. Maybe I was a girl children who just couldn't whimsy. Um, and then a white-clad girl tiptoeing to her own reflection from the marsh at the head of the pond came the clear, mournfully sweet chorus of frogs. There was a little grey house peering around, blah, 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 right? Matthew, that's Barry's pond, said Matthew. Oh, I don't like that name either. I shall call it, let me see. Can you guess? The Lake of Shining Waters. Yes, that's the right name for it. I know because of the thrill. When I hit on a name that suits exactly, it gives me a thrill. Do things ever give you a thrill? I'm sorry you don't like the name of Barry's Pond and Anne with an E, but um, that's what it's called. It belongs to Barry. It's Barry's Pond. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you'd rather give Barry a different name because you don't like him and his, his ugly name pond. But quite frankly, her namings are awful. The Lake of Shining Waters is just really quite literal. Don't like it. Ah. And then, uh, yeah, we have unbearable quantities of that. Just unbearable quantities. So at this point, I would like to go to Harry Potter. Um, now, there's a lot to say about all the characters in Harry Potter. Um, he's the hero of a series whose actual protagonist should not be him or his horrible friends at all. Um, in the hands of any other children's author, Neville and Luna Lovegood would have been the heroes of that book. But no, instead we get stuck with Harry and Ron and Hermione. So hear me out here. Now, your, the first and most obvious question is, why isn't Hermione the girl that you would least like to have in class? I mean, this is a girl who's given the gift of time travel and uses it to do extra homework. She could go back and kill Hitler. She could, she could do anything she wanted, but no, she does extra homework. Um, you know Hermione, you teach several Hermiones. She is the girl who you know will be messaging you on show my homework six seconds after you should have posted the learning assignment. You know it. And then you also know that when you check your email, she will have sent you a message there too. Absolutely. Um, I, side sidetrack, I uh, like, I'm gonna pretend it was a, a long ago school I was at. Obviously people like to be set homework if they are parents of children and senior management who are checking to see if you've put up homework. But some of us, not me, but some of us, think that homework is 90% of the time completely pointless and and don't set it unless it's point four. And so some of us, who might include me, told their students that they would put up the homework every week on Show My Homework, but that if they really had to do it, the rest of it would be a sort of Potemkin village of homework, a fake homework that the visiting star could wander through and, uh, and, and assume was homework, but they wouldn't actually have to do it. If it was a real homework, I would tell them in class, you know, you have to do this essay practice, da, da, da. but there would always be homework. Okay, fine. System of mutually assured destruction here. We're all in on it. And what it relies on is no evil child knocks like Bryony or Hermione or Lucy, right? The worst thing that happened to this teacher who absolutely in no way was me was that one of her students um, put, Miss, is this a real homework in the public comments on the homework? Or is this one of the fake ones? Thanks, kid. We're a real Leo. All right. 
that is Hermione. Here's another thing that Hermione would be. Hermione would be the student who would voluntarily rewrite essays, like for no reason. You've already narrowed your gaps. You've already moved on to a new topic. But Hermione will lurch up to your desk. You wouldn't be looking. You turn around backwards dolly shot when you realise there's a child in front of you clutching densely written A4 sheets of paper. She will voluntarily rewrite those essays and then ask them, ask you to read them when you're on your way to get coffee or to have the solitary pee of the day that you have time for. Just unbearable. Why Harry though, then, and not Hermione? And actually, before we go to Hermione, let's let's look at some of the other beloved characters. Um, the Weasley twins. The only thing wrong with the Weasley twins is that both of them didn't die, quite frankly. Terrible, terrible monsters, for some unaccountable reason, presented as charming japesters and rascals. Uh, like Matilda, they take a great deal of delight in physically tormenting younger children, unlicensed experimentation on year sevens, physically transformative surprise potions that end people in the infirmary for years. Those two should be in Azkaban, not running a sweetie shop in um on the high street. Uh, but still, I'll come back to Harry, the allegedly noble one. Now, the thing with Harry is that he is, he is, I promise you, he's that kid who is appalling in class, absolutely appalling in class, but really good at football. And he goes out to the all-weather pitch every lunchtime. You've got him periods five and six on a Friday. And he comes in bright red-faced, absolutely sweating. He's lost his blazer. It's still out on the field. His jumper is off. Like He's been told off by senior management three times on the way into your classroom. You're supposed to manage him. Um, he comes in with his friend late because he's been playing football. He almost certainly wants some water. Uh, let's face it. And then he sits down and you tell him to be quiet. And what happens? He says, everybody else was talking. And then that argument goes on for another five minutes. Let's look at the evidence, shall we? Right, so first lesson with Snape. And we're going to track it using currently fashionable, currently on vogue edu theory, particularly teaching like a champion. Does Snape teach like a champion? Snape, like Flitwick, started the class by taking the roll call. And like Flitwick, he paused at Harry's name. Good, safeguarding measure, checking in with the kids. Ah, yes, he said softly, Harry Potter our new celebrity. All right, everybody else has mentioned that Harry is a celebrity, so there's there's nothing particularly unusual here. I feel like you or I would definitely do the same thing. Um, Draco Malfoy and his friends Crabbe and Goyle sniggered behind their hands. Snape finished calling the names and looked up at the class. When he says Draco Malfoy and his friends Crabbe and Goyle sniggered behind their hands, you know, you know what this means. This means that Harry Potter he is convinced that some people on the other table are talking to him. Now, all you need Harry to do is just say yes in the register and we can move on. But no, um, instead, he's like, miss, they're talking about me, miss, they're looking at me. That's absolutely what would ensue. We have all taught those year sevens. You know exactly what happens. You also know his devastating line that's about to come. But he's irritating me. Mm, tough luck, year seven. Suck it up, as far as I can tell. Crab, Goyle, and Draco are behaving perfectly in this lesson. Um, and we'll carry on. He spoke in barely more than a whisper. No, no, no. Yep. Snape finished calling the names and looked up at the class. His eyes were black like Hagrid's, but they had none of Hagrid's warmth. They were cold and empty and made you think of dark tunnels. Well, maybe they made you think of dark tunnels, um, 
J.K. Rowling's partial limited perspective narrator. But to me, it looks like um, Snape is controlling the room. He is running the room. Just like Mr. Unchbull, he is in control of the room. He is being seen looking. He is making sure that every child has eyes on him, is sitting upright. It's it's a behavioural dream, people. Uh, he's establishing boundaries. Well, let's see him about um, establishing boundaries after following safeguarding procedures and being seen looking. You are here to learn the subtle science and exact art of potion making, he began. He spoke in barely more than a whisper, but they caught every word. Like Professor McGonagall, Snape had the gift of keeping a class silent without effort. See? He is completely in control of behaviour, establishing boundaries, expectations, um, establishing the teacher as expert, with clearly communicated high expectations. He's teaching to the top. I'm all for it. He's doing extremely well. Uh, let's see what he goes on to say next. As there is little foolish wand waving here, many of you will hardly believe this is magic. I don't expect you will really understand the beauty of the softly simmering cauldron with its shimmering fumes, the delicate power of liquids that creep through human veins, bewitching the mind, ensnaring the senses. I can teach you how to bottle fame, brew glory, even stop a death, if you aren't as big a bunch of dunderheads as I usually have to teach. Passion for his subject comes through, shines through, outstanding disciplinary knowledge. And look at how he's modelling high register language, use of tricolon crescendo, use of polysyllabic complex syntax. He is clearly modelling high register standard English in the classroom. Um, like poor Miss Trunchbull, who had taught them so thoroughly about the hippopotamuses of the Limpopo River, he is wanting to make sure that they really are <laughs> disciplinary concepts, Tom says. Yes, exactly. Exactly. This is fashionable. <clears throat> this is the curriculum as learning. This is thinking deeply and richly about the curriculum and making sure it's full of powerful knowledge. And in this case, the powerful knowledge is, is very literally powerful. All the more important that they learn about the liquids that creep through human veins, don't you think? But here's how Harry reacts. More silence followed this little speech. Harry and Ron exchanged looks with raised eyebrows. Hermione Granger was on the edge of her seat and looked desperate to start proving that she wasn't a dunderhead. This is the first sign of disruptive behaviour from Potter and Weasley, the low-level disruption that will become the most constant feature of their classroom persona. I think just about every single lesson, after we get beyond the initial ones, starts with Harry essentially. Remember, I'm picturing him as red-faced boy coming from football late, throwing his water bottle, um, then you tell him to please be quiet and concentrate on what he's doing. He says, everybody else is talking. He says, why are you picking on me? He flips the table and walks out. That is every lesson with Harry and potions for the entire year. He's hell. If I were Snape, I'd have had him transferred to a different teacher. Oh, no, I just can't teach him. Can you put him in the room of requirements? He can teach himself potions. Um, and so uh, very appropriately after this, Snape cold calls Harry, who's not visibly paying attention. So he's checking for knowledge and he's using cold calling as a way of keeping attention on him. Eyes on me, slanting. Potter, said Snape suddenly. What would I get if I added powdered root of asphodel to an infusion of wormwood? Powdered root of what to an infusion of what? Harry glanced at Ron, who looked as stumped as he was. Hermione's hand had shot into the air. Snape is checking prior knowledge. He's looking to see what's in Harry's potions schema in order to add to it and make sure that he won't be um, 
cognitively overloaded while learning about potions. Snape's doing everything right, but the narrator suggests Snape is doing everything wrong. What should he do next? I don't know, sir, said Harry. Snape's lips curled into a sneer. Tut tut, fame clearly isn't everything. He ignored Hermione's hand. So, again, does a follow-up question. Doesn't leave it with the first no, the first refusal to engage with knowledge. Tries to, to bring forth more of it and then ignores Hermione, which the narrator clearly thinks is a mean and cruel thing to do. But in fact, let's face it, all of us ignore the Hermione's because we have to, because Doug Lamolf told us to, right? And Tom Sheringham and everyone. There's no point checking with Hermione if she understands. Of course she understands. You have to ask the annoying football kid because if the annoying football kid isn't learning, nobody's learning, right? Making learning visible in the classroom. So <laughs> after <clears throat> prompting for an extension from the student's answer, after not accepting refusal to engage, still modeling high expectations, um, Snape still having a go. Hermione stretched her hand as high into the air as it would go without leaving her seat. But Harry didn't have the faintest idea what a bezu was. Oh, sorry, I left out the question. Let's try again, Potter. What would you, where would you look if I told you to find me a bezu? So again, won't, won't let him get out of this. Making sure he engages, keeping on with the cold, cold calling and the questioning and the extension work. Hermione stretched her hand as high in the air as it would go without her leaving her seat, but Harry didn't have the faintest idea what a bezoar was. He tried not to look at Malfoy, Crabbe and Goyle, who were shaking with laughter. Yeah, don't look at them, Harry, because they're on another table and they've got nothing to do with you. Just look at your own table. I can't tell you how many times I said that to people early on in my teaching career. Don't look at him. Just don't look. Just look at your own table. He's not talking about you, <sighs> Harry. And let's notice here, Harry's not done the bridging work. He's not done the prep, he's not done the homework, he's not done anything. Harry forced himself to keep looking straight into those cold eyes. Well, fine, good. There's no prizes for doing what you're supposed to do. He had looked through the book at the Dursleys, but did Snape expect him to remember everything in 1,000 magical herbs and fungi? No, Harry, just the basics. The bezoar, this is me talking now. Um, bezoar's a fascinating thing. A bezoar is um, when an, an organism, especially an animal, gets an irritant embedded under their skin or, or buried in their guts or something. Um, it gets a layers and layers of, um, that's, how do I put this non-disgustingly? Mucus, that's quite disgusting. Build up around that, that irritant and, and harden and turn into a pearl, a pearl is a bezoar, that sort of thing. Yeah. And so they were considered um, in the pre-modern period to have really quite magical properties, including as a, um, I can't remember the exact term, but they were, they were considered to be able to get rid of all poisons. So any poison you took, a universal panacea against poison was a bezoar. Now see, I know that, and I'm not even a wizard. So I feel like Harry should definitely have known that. So really just the basics. And that is where we're gonna end today. Even though I could carry on for really quite a long time, Let's just recap what makes a good and bad character. Now, it was easy to pick on the true monsters of literature. It's easy to pick on the ones who are quite literal monsters. Um, any of the children of Stephen King who are undead, someone picked Gage from Pet Cemetery. Yeah, but he's a tiny zombie. I just, of course you don't want zombies in the classroom. No points for saying no zombies. Um, Damien the Amen, obviously. Uh, oh, the children from, um, from from various horror and gothic novels 
but especially the children from the turn of the screw by henry james who um are deeply deeply disturbing pair of children who need to be sent straight to safeguarding and pastoral and then managed out of the school it wouldn't be hashtag no more exclusions of them i can tell you uh, but we know they're supposed to be bad and nominative determinism the idea that your name determines your your destiny your character really applies to characters like horrid henry or the naughtiest girl in the school you could look at them on the timetable on the register and know that you didn't want them right whereas your anne shirley's your rebecca's of sunnybrook farms your pollyanna's these are beloved children these are children who you know a hundred 150 years worth of people have thought were just the very whimsical heroines for them and yet if you had them in the classroom they would be unbearable I know there are a lot of Anne Shirley fans out there, but tell me that you wouldn't find it somewhat grating when she renamed you halfway through a lesson because she thought Ms. McIntosh was just too dull and instead you should be called the Great White Way of Shining Water Lady Face or whatever dull name she'd come up with. Um, and Lucy Pevensey, yeah, just just a final, a final plea for Edmund here. Edmund might sell out his family for Turkish delight. He might be drawn to evil. Um, he might seem to enjoy being dominated by the White Witch just a tad too much, but he has a character arc. He is flawed and he gets better. He learns, he self-reflects. None of the other children, your Peters, your Susans, your Lucys, really ever bother to do that. And that's what makes them so awful. But again, and finally, the worst person, just the most irritating person to have in class would be Harry Potter. Because at the end of the day, he'd win Sports Player of the Year award. Everyone would absolutely adore him, including half the staff and most of the PE department. And you'd never find anyone who was willing to put up with the vicious ranting you needed to do about him. All right, that has been me. I hope this broadcast, it seems to have done. Um, I don't know if it was, I think it was funnier last week when only the cats heard it, but you'll have to take the cat's words for it. So I will see you next week um, when I think we'll be moving on from fictional children and perhaps, I don't know, we'll see. We'll see what we're doing. We'll see what madness occurs in uh, education news this week. Apologies for having no noise. Um, imagine very cheerful and dramatic music playing us out. And apologies again to Charlene Gale that I couldn't play her news. Goodbye, everyone. I'll see you next week.